just a little bit. But let me pray, and then we're going to enter our time of teaching. Uh, dear Lord, we are so thankful again this morning. And Lord, we pray for those who aren't here with us. We pray that you would encourage them this week. Um, Lord, for whatever reason, they're not here. Either they're traveling, or they're away, or maybe they're sick, or maybe they're having a bad week. And the last thing they want to do is be around other people. But I pray that you would encourage them this morning. Uh, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would use us as, as the church to help them and to, to carry their burdens with them, Lord. Um, to be a, a hand and the feet and the mouth, uh, Lord, and, to, and just to truly care for people. Uh, and, that, and that takes patience, that takes compassion and love, and I pray that you would get it when we're lacking it, Lord. When we're tired, when we are stressed out, when we're frustrated with our jobs, our families, Lord, I pray in those situations that you would give us love and compassion. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. Uh, we pray, Lord, for the Bridge Church and their pastor, Brandon Lindsay, and their, and, their, and their elders. Lord, we pray for that church on the north side. Lord, that, that church has been ministering here in Amphisville for seven years, Lord. We pray that you continue to use them to disciple people. We pray for their men's uh, the, the, um, their men's uh, fellowship, Bible study that just started on Saturdays. Lord, we pray that more men would come and learn about God's word. Lord, we pray for other churches in town. We pray that you would use them this summer. We pray that you would encourage them as... Typically, numbers go down in churches, and people aren't around for vacations and other things. Lord, I pray, Lord, that the leadership will be encouraged this, this, this summer. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would gather more people to be a part of this church, and that this summer that we would see growth as well. We love you. We pray for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Right. Man, I'm going to tell you, I, I don't know if you've been growing up in the church. and I, I've been in the church since I was, let's see, I was baptized when I was eight. Uh, I kind of know Christ when I was eight, was baptized when I was eight. I've been in the church for a long time. My dad was a deacon in our local Baptist church. Man, I've heard all the Bible stories and uh, all kinds of, you know, I, I've known all the stories. And in this particular story, the transfiguration, I've heard it, like, so many times, but I really didn't think it was that important. Like, okay, Jesus, clothes change. Like, what, uh, what, what's significant about this story? So I've never preached it. They always say that knowledge is kept better when you learn something and then teach it, right? And, and so I really, this week, have really grown to appreciate and love this particular episode of Jesus' life. Um, it is a mysterious and unusual story, let's be honest. Like, it's a bit unusual. It's difficult to find what its real purpose is. I mean, we get ghosts. We have ghosts in the story. We got Jesus, like, bedazzled. Like, his clothes are literally bedazzled. It's, like, shiny and sparkly. Uh, Peter's saying stupid stuff, right? Um... Crazy weather patterns are freaking guys out. I mean, Peter and, the, and James and John are freaked out by this cloud. Um, and, and, and the story is in the life of Christ. It's an interesting story. But, like, what does it really mean? And I've struggled, like, what does this passage really mean? Why is it important? You know, every, each of the, of, the, of the writers of the gospel, of the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but all three record the story. And pretty much provide the same description and place the story in the same spot chronologically as the others. If you know, if you've read Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, you realize they kind of structured their accounts of Jesus' life differently, right? Similar stories, similar episodes, but they kind of place them in different parts of their account. But in this particular story, the Transfiguration, they add the same details. They place it in the same spot. They place the story in the same spot chronologically as the others. Each placed the event after the each placed the event after the prediction of his death and the confession by Peter. But yet, why is it important? I want to argue this morning that the Transfiguration is an essential moment in the life of Christ. 
I mean, we have a whole holiday, right? A whole holiday that celebrates the birth of Christ, which makes sense. I mean, Christ coming into the world, the virgin birth, is a very significant story, right? But do you know that it's not mentioned ever by the rest of the New Testament writers? I mean, Mark doesn't even include it in his gospel. John doesn't even include it in his gospel. Paul doesn't even refer to it all. But yet we have a celebration, a holiday for the incarnation of Christ. But do you know that all the synoptic writers mention the transfiguration and the apostle, the apostle Peter in the book of 2 Peter actually refers back to this particular episode in the life of Christ and how significant it was to him and to the church. Which leads me to ask the question this morning, are you bored with the Bible? Like, honestly, are you bored with the Bible? Like, do you, like, come this morning on Sunday mornings and, like, you know you're supposed to be here. You open up the Bible. You're like, this is my least favorite part of the whole service. My, my least favorite part of the worship service is the Bible teaching. It takes up most of the time. We don't get to sing. It's boring. Or do you read at home and you're like, oh, my gosh, another Bible story, another uh, hour in the Bible on my reading. I'm just bored with it. Like, it just doesn't do anything for me. You leave. The Bible is something that, that leaves you uninspired and bored. Do you, I mean, are you there this morning? Do you just really, when you read the Bible or hear the Bible, are just completely uninspired and bored with it? I think a lot of us are bored with it. We've heard it so many times, and it's just boring. And we don't really understand or really don't uh, uh, kind of think through this the idea that the Bible is true and these events actually happen. And I think this particular story, the transfiguration of Christ, is a game changer. Let me put it in a way that maybe makes more sense for you. I am a huge sports fan. I love Tennessee football. If you know me, I love the balls and I love the football time. And I love, like, the hype videos, right, that they put on YouTube. Where, like, it's a video of, like, just the players, like, lifting and, like, running and getting ready for the season. And, I mean, I'm, like, pumped up. Like, I'm ready to, like, for football season. That's all right. I love the hype videos. It just kind of gets me excited. Gets me hyped up for what's going on. And it's just a glimpse, right? It's just a glimpse of what to come. Like, do you know that college football is 100 days away? 100 days away. And that excites me, that college football is only 100 days away. And you watch these hype videos, and it just gives you a glimpse of when the season's about to start. Um, some of you are huge movie fans. You love trailers, right, or teasers. When the Star Wars trailer came out of the teaser, man, that was like, that made your day. That made your week. That made your month, right? When the, when the teaser dropped, when the trailer dropped. For some of you Marvel fans, when the in-game trailer dropped, man, it was, you were talking about it, you were sharing it on Facebook or wherever, like you love, but they're what they are, they're not the movie, they're just a glimpse, right? It's a hype video, it kind of hypes you up. You get a glimpse of what to come. You're hyped, you're excited, your mouth is being watered and you want more, but you have to wait, right? You have to wait for the movie to come out, you have to wait for the next Star Wars movie, you have to wait till December, the movie to come out. It's just a glimpse. It's just to whip your, your appetite. The transfiguration of Christ is a hype video. The transfiguration is a teaser. It's a trailer. So my purpose is to kind of hype you up and to remind you the Bible is not boring and uninspiring. It is quite the opposite, actually. The story of the Bible is incredible. It's mind-bending, yet it's real, it's genuine, and it's true. So the title of the, of the message before I read this. Actually, let me read the passage and then 
we'll get into that. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. Sorry. Let me read 27 and then I'll But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up to the mountain, on the mountain, to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became bedazzling white. Dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting, were parting from him, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. So the, kind of the main idea, so the title of the passage, I'll put that up on the screen first. The title of the passage is, On the Mountain to the Valley of the Demon Possessed. From the Mountain to the Valley of the Demon Possessed. So the main idea is that Christ's full glory is genuine, revealed in time and space, and the means of the church's living hope in present darkness as the church awaits her future destiny. So some context here, just to kind of present some context. Um, again, like this whole chapter of chapter 9 of Luke is all about preparation. That Jesus is preparing his disciples for what to come, for what, what's going to come, come in the future. That he is going to depart, that he is going to suffer, that he is going to die, he is going to be rejected by men, he is going to then raise from the dead. So he's preparing them for his departure. He then sends them out, right, and, and then he go and proclaim the gospel to heal the sick, he sends them all out, and then after that story, remember, he, he feeds the 5,000, but he actually he actually gives the disciples the, the food, and they then feed the, the crowd. We know of, of Peter's confession when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, Christ, uh, the, the, the Son of God. He, he, uh, and so he, he, uh, you have this confession by Peter of, of Christ's identity. Then Christ's statements right after that of his suffering and his rejection, of his death and his resurrection. And then he calls them to true discipleship, which is to follow him in that suffering, to take up their cross, to renounce themselves and follow him. The one who say the one who loses himself is the one who saves himself, Jesus says. And so this is kind of the context that's been building up until this moment here in the Transfiguration. And then verse 27 is helpful and it's major the major key to this passage. It says, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not take death until they see the kingdom of God. That verse is odd when it's when, you're, when it's included with that call to discipleship, carry your cross and follow me. You're like, where does this fit with those passages? It really is the key to the transfiguration. Jesus is continuing to prepare them for the future. He tells them what their job description is, what their resources are, what, their, what his expectations are, and then that he provides a vision. So we come to the transfiguration. 
And uh, I'm going to skip the first point and just go to the second one. Uh, Christ's full glory and majesty is revealed in time and space. That's the first point. Now, about the eight, so eight days after this, this moment with Peter and who do you say that I am, and he tells them what, uh, basically what the call to discipleship is, that they have to renounce themselves, carry their cross, and follow him. After that event... They are. They go to the mountain, and, and John, Jesus only takes Peter, James, and John to the mountain to pray. And and these details are helpful because this isn't some thematic addition. This isn't some thematic addition by Luke that has no historical explanation. That's not a historical event. He just adds this just to show that Christ is the Son of God. That this event actually happened. It is, it is an historical event. Just look at the description. If it wasn't a historical event, you wouldn't use terms like on the eighth day or after eight days they went on the mountain. Those details, and those details are consistent with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of this story. And it's included, like I said before, this story is included uh, chronologically. It's placed in the same chronological placing as the other gospel writers. So Peter, James, and John are brought with him to the mountain. This is not something Jesus does by himself, where he goes on the mountain by himself, and he talks to Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John are there, and they're there for a particular reason, to show us that there was eyewitnesses to this event. But why does Jesus bring them with him? What is the purpose of the transfiguration? Why is it so important that Jesus take Peter, James, and John to the mountain eight days later to see this event? What is the purpose of this story? So as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white, like flashes of lightning, how bright this his garment had become. It was bright. It was unusual. It wasn't like something that Jesus did on and off again. This is the first time that his garment and his face changed. And, and the point of all this is that the journey ahead that the disciples are about to take, that they're going to be following Jesus as Jesus is suffered many things as he is rejected by the religious establishment of Jerusalem, as he is killed by the Roman Empire, they are going to want to give up. They are going to want to run away. And this entire event is to give them hope for the journey ahead. Christ's coming departure, his suffering and death, is, this, is, this transfiguration, this event, this episode where Jesus' face is altered, where his garments become dazzling white, is hope in the present darkness. The moment is for these three men to see Christ's glory fully on display, for it to be present to them directly that Jesus is not just a simple son of a carpenter from Nazareth, but that he is the Son of God, and it's visually proof that he is this. Because if you look throughout the Bible, miracles are insufficient. You think of Exodus, you think of the people of Israel as they left Egypt. What did they get? They got the ten plagues, right? They got the Passover. They got the, uh, the, uh, the Red Sea crossing. They got the pillar of cloud, the pillars of fire. They got manna from the sky. They got water from the rock. All of these events happened to them. And what did they do? They worshiped the golden calf, right? 
And what does Moses say in Exodus 33? He says he is concerned. He is worried. He's afraid that he's going to go on this journey and God's going to abandon him and his people. And he says, show me your glory so that I'll be confirmed and I'll have hope that you will be with us on this journey. He says this. And what does God do? He shows him the back of him. He gets to see God's glory in a glimpse, but not the full glory, right? So these men, and this happened also with Isaiah chapter 6. What does Isaiah see? He sees a vision of God's glory. And then what does he say after the vision? Whom shall I send? God says, and he said, send me. He needs hope. He needs the glory of God to show him that his journey is not, is not in vain, but that God goes with them. And this story here in the transfiguration is for these men to have hope in their journey ahead. And I think this is, this is important for us all, that seeing God's glory leads to hope. Seeing his glory leads to hope. Knowing God is Lord over the universe, fear evaporates when you know that God is with you and God is far more powerful and far more, uh, far more uh, holy and glorious than anything on this earth. The possibility of God's power at work in creation is, it evaporates anxiety, it evaporates Fear. That's what Moses was asking for. Show me your glory so that my fear would go away and so that I would be filled with hope. One of my favorite lines in the entire series of Harry Potter, one of my favorite lines, and it's probably one that is not the most, it's not like one of the great lines uh, at the end of the movie or something. It's, it's, when, it's in the fourth movie. And if you remember, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you know what I'm talking about. He goes, they go to the World Cup, right? The Quidditch World Cup, right? And he goes in that tent, and, and Harry's great because he's not from that world. Like, he's kind of a, an orphan, and he gets brought back, gets brought into this world. He walks in the tent, and he says, I love magic, because he sees this whole world, and he's overwhelmed by it, right? He thinks it's so awesome, because he didn't grow up in it, right? It's all new to him, or it's not new to Ron and uh, all the others, but all of it's new to him. And he says, I love this. And what, 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 what's happening there is, is his eyes is open to the possibilities that he never even thought were possibilities, right? He didn't know that a little tent can become a big tent when he walked into it, right? That doesn't make sense in his world, but in that world, it's fully possible. The reason why people love Avatar and Lord of the Rings and the Marvel and Narnia is because it presents a world that's full of possibilities, right? A possibility like a man can actually build an iron suit and fly into space. Like, that is awesome. That is cool. And you fight bad guys or... There's all those worlds present a world of full of possibilities. And the transfiguration presents a world of endless possibilities, right? That Jesus Christ, the glory and majesty of Christ Jesus, has truly invaded the world. Like he truly has come in time and space, right? They see Jesus, his face is altered, his clothes are shiny white, and they go, oh my gosh, he truly is God. Like, we see it. It's public. And it presents this world of possibilities that the disciples are truly not the mercy and judgment of the Roman Empire, right? That they're not up against some power and some force that, yes, physically is more powerful than them and stronger than them and wealthier than them, but knowing that Jesus, the one whose face was altered, whose place both were dazzling white on the mountain, is with them, they had nothing to fear. Not even the Roman Empire. They're not at the mercy and the judgment of a force that perceived to be more strong and more powerful than they. 
They are sent into the world to proclaim the truth of the kingdom of God with all knowledge that God is in control. He is the Lord. They're not defined by their opportunities. They're not defined by their skills or their network. They are, we are not defined by our opportunities or by our skills or by our network. We are defined by ones who are in Christ, and Christ is with us, and that's all that we need. See the story of Mount Carmel and Elijah, right? That is a great story, right? Like, one of the best. And, and, and where God, like, just smokes that, 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 that offering, right? And, and, and then all these people see it. That that's the God that is with us, right? That's not some story from ancient days that has no relevance to it. Oh, that's a cool story. The Bible's cool that kids like. That's a story that shows that God's glory is real. And it's on display. And these disciples saw that same glory. The world that we live in, we're baptized into a world of new possibilities. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you don't believe in the Bible, you live in a world that has no possibilities except what you see and what you can do on your own. But in a world where God can literally come inside of it and take on flesh and die and raise from the dead and ascend into heaven, that's the world that we literally live in. That's not some made-up world. That's not something the Bible presents this fantasy story that is the real world. We live in a world where God the Creator takes on flesh of his creature to suffer and die for the salvation and then raise from the dead. This is the world that we live in. It's not a fairy tale. This is the world that we live in. The universe literally ripped apart when Jesus came into it, right? It ripped open because God came into the world and showed his glory to the world. I think a lot of the, I would probably say this is the biggest problem in the church today is practical atheism. I think it's one of the worst, but probably one of the biggest problems because we live as if the world is truly flat, right? Like the world's like flat, that's all that there is, and we stand on the shore and we look at it, we're like, well, I'm never going to cross that sea because if I do, I'm going to fall off the end. That's the world that we think we live in. We don't live in that world. We live in a world of unbelievable possibilities because God created it and he literally came in it. He sent his spirit in it. We're not doomed to fate. We're not defined by our evolution. We're not defined by our opportunities. Yet we live in a world where God comes into it, into it and comes into a time and space. He went on the mountain. His appearance changed. He was seen talking with Moses and Elijah, two major figures of the Old Testament, representing the law and the prophets. Christ Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they spoke and all that they promised. Yet now God has revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, chapter 1, uh, helps us with this. That God spoke through Moses, the law, the prophets. But now, it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He speaks with Moses and Elijah about his departure, what he is going to accomplish in Jerusalem, that Jesus is the new Exodus, that he will then be the new Passover, that he fulfills all the delivering promises by God in the Old Testament. 
He is the suffering servant that will save us from our iniquities and our sins. He is the God's great servant who will come and deliver his people. And this will all be accomplished in time and space. That God will come in time and space and deliver us. So Peter and James and John, they become fully awake. They see his glory and the two men who stood with him. They're sleeping and, and they are heavy with sleep. They wake up and they see Jesus in his glory. They see him in his radiance. And while Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth. His place of residence is actually heaven. This shows his heavenly sphere. When they see Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah, right? Talking about his departure. They see his faith. They see his clothing. They go, this guy doesn't belong here. He belongs there. He is talking with Moses and Elijah. His native sphere is heaven. God is his father. Nature, demons, and death yield to him. The grave will soon surrender him. He will return to his exalted place. This is where Christ reigns. This is where Christ is. And he came on earth. He shows his, Christ shows this reality to them that he is God. He is full of glory and majesty. He has invaded the world, his creation, to set things right. He will accomplish it soon in Jerusalem. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are witnesses of this display, of this truth and action. They see all this. They witness all this. And the next point is all of this, seeing his glory, seeing his majesty, is the means of their living hope in the present darkness. It's their living hope in the present darkness. That's point number two. What does Peter say? He says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. Okay? So mistake number one that Peter makes, right? Mistake number one is he refers to Jesus as equal to Moses and Elijah. That was, point, that was mistake number one, right? I mean, why he would say that Jesus, the Son of God, is equal with two other men, even if they were prominent men in, in the history of Israel, was the biggest one of the biggest mistakes that he made with this statement. Mistake number two is the desire to extend the moment is, is mistake number two. He wants to, he sees Christ's glory unveiled, right? And then he, he puts it on full display on the mountain. And Moses and Elijah are present with him. And Peter wants the moment to never end, right? He said, we'll build two tabernacles, we'll build three tabernacles, and we'll just stay up here. We'll, we'll extend the worship, we'll extend the stay, we'll extend the experience. Keep Jesus from leaving the mountain. Then he will never go to Jerusalem. He'll never suffer and he'll never die. People want spiritual experiences but not trusting God and his word in the real world. They want to stay on the mountain. They want to dwell there forever. They never actually want to take what God calls us and teaches us and take it into the real world. That's the problem with, with, with monasticism and monks. That's the problem with Christian retreats, Christian concerts. This worship service hype on experience and not substance. We just want the experience to never end never actually want to go into the real world. And Peter fails at that. He wants to continue to extend this moment in his life and that actually wants to go into the real world where there's going to be suffering and there's going to be death and rejection and persecution. They must leave the mountain and Jesus must accomplish what he came to do and Peter, James, and John will then leave the church after Christ's departure. That is the plan. That is the will of God. They have been shown his glory and majesty so that they will be filled with hope as they enter into the valley of the shadow of death. Their plan, their, their, the will for God was not for them to hang out on the mountain for years. His will was for them to go down to the valley, to suffer, and be rejected. 
The voice came out of the cloud that said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. This is the same thing Jesus says in, in the baptism story. This is my beloved son, of whom I am well pleased. That talking about Jesus' sonship, this is speaking about Jesus as God's revelation to the world. Like God's speaking to the world through his son Jesus. The confirmation of this coming departure, that this is God's will for Jesus to suffer, be rejected, and to die. This is his will, that he will suffer many things. He will be rejected and killed. He will raise again from the grave. God's plan, word, and character revealed through Christ Jesus. This is God's will. He is revealing himself in the last days through Christ Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In the face of Christ Jesus, God's glory is revealed to man. They keep silent, this is the end of the passage, they keep silent and told no one in those days anything that what they had seen. Jesus was alone again after the cloud had gone away, after the voice that came from the cloud, he was gone. He, Moses and Elijah had left. His glory veiled again. He, that, that altering face and that shiny clothing went away. He returned back to his former self. His glory will be revealed again. Now, this is important here. This is not something when, the, when Jesus rose from the grave, they didn't necessarily recognized Jesus as the transfigured glory of God. They didn't even know who he was. They thought he was just a normal traveler in Luke 24. In the garden, they thought he was a gardener. So I think what, what, when we think that God, Christ's glory being unveiled again, we're thinking about the second coming. When God, that, what they saw at the mountain, at the mountain of the transfiguration is what Jesus will look like when he returns. And I think this is what Paul saw. He saw this on the road to Damascus. He saw Jesus in his fully glory and majesty, full glory, the way that he revealed himself on the mountain. People will see, they saw a poor son of a carpenter from Nazareth. They saw the suffering servant. They saw the, the, the man riding on a donkey. They saw the servant washing his disciples' feet. He is soon to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified. This is what they saw. They did not see Jesus with an altered face and shiny clothes. They saw a normal poor man from Nazareth. But what the disciples saw for a glimpse is what we will see in Christ's second coming. So what does Jesus do? The next day, in verse 37, what does he do? He leaves the mountain, and then he meets the crowd. And he heals a demon-possessed son, a boy. So after the mountain scene, all of those things, they go back to the valley. They go, and, and then that's a road to Christ's suffering, rejection, and persecution. He will then suffer, he'll be rejected, he'll be persecuted. This is his path, and it's also the path of the church. So what we see, when they see Jesus in his glory, that, that glimpse of that, they go down the mountain, and everything from that day is the road to the cross. His path. For the church, he tells the church, he tells the disciples to imagine that they will be persecuted, that people will hate them because of their love and their, 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 their worship of Christ. Hebrews 11 tells us about all the different people that had followed Christ and were persecuted for their faith. 2 Peter 1, uh, chapter, 2 Peter 1, 16, Peter refers to the transfiguration here, and he talks about how important it was uh, to them and to their faith. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 16. For we did not know, we did not follow cleverly devised myth when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is talking about the transfiguration. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majesty of glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word, or fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, as the lamp shining in the dark place. So the day dawns, and the morning star rises in the, heaven, in the hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter also says in 112, 1 Peter 1.12, the importance of this, this being confirmed. It says, Blessed, uh, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving at themselves with you and things that have now been announced to these things, who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, Things into which angels long to look. That these people, when they saw Christ in his glory, it gave them hope. Verse 3 of 1 uh, Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That when they saw Jesus in his glory, it gave them living hope for the journey ahead. For the present darkness that they are about to enter into. That being on the mountain, why it was a spiritual vision. But their transformation was happening in the valley. As they struggled, as they were in darkness, they had to trust and hope in God, and that's where they were transformed. That the gathering of believers is a preparation for life in the present darkness in the demon-possessed valley. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To our inheritance by God's power are being guarded through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times, grieved by various trials that Peter talks about. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We are walking in pain through the wilderness. We are walking with our cross on our backs to the top of the mountain. We look to Christ's glory and majesty, and we are rich with hope because our lives are in the valley. Our lives are in present darkness. We are walking to the mountain with our cross on our back. Jesus has already said this. Renounce yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. That is where we live. We do not live on a mountain. We live in the valley, and we have to trust in the majesty and glory of Christ to give us hope in the present darkness. Point number three, the last one, is that Christ's full glory and majesty is your future destiny. So what you see on the mountain, what the Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain is their future. They saw the future. Not only were they shown Christ's future, but they were shown their own future. That this is their future. That Christ suffered, Christ departed, Christ was risen to glory, and His church suffers. His church is killed. The persecution of the church right now is the worst it's ever been in the history of the world. Right now, it's, it's a humanitarian issue that is completely ignored by the world. But Christians are killed more today than they've ever been killed in the history of the, the church. This is our present darkness. This is where we are. We are in the valley. We are not on the mountain. We are walking towards persecution, rejection. This is how Christ walked, right? He suffered. He was rejected. He died. But then what will happen to the church? They will be raised from the dead. And it will be glorified. It will be shown the way that Christ was shown on the mountain. What Christ looked like will be also how the church looks. The church will rise to glory. And it will, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. What the disciples saw, what Peter, James, and John saw on that mountain is the future. 
They, what they saw in Christ is their own future, and it gave them hope. Living hope as they lived in the present darkness, as they lived in a world that persecuted and hated them. Their only hope was what they saw on that mountain, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, that he has all the power, and he is with them to the end. Which kind of comes to the end here. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, my life lately has been just filled with fear. And this passage was very helpful this week in kind of unleashing that fear, that fear evaporating, and realizing that Christ's glory, which was revealed in time and space to give the disciples a living hope as they await the future destiny, goes with me. That we live in a world where God comes into this world and transforms it. He invades our world and resides with us. His spirit is with me now. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest. I don't know what pastors should say this to their church, but I'm not afraid of the future. And I, I, I think it's just, it's just, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we're not going to buy the building. I'm afraid. Like, if you know me and you've been a part of our like weekly, I'm scared. Because I don't know what is that. I don't know. Like, come on, ask me, so you're going to get the building? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. That's the desire, but I'm afraid that we won't have the money to do it. I'm afraid that something will happen that we're unprepared for, and I'm afraid. I'm truly afraid. And this passage helped. Because I realized I don't have to be afraid. That they, what they saw on the mountain is the same Christ that is with us right now. And I don't have to be afraid. None of you have to be afraid. You don't have to be full of fear and anxiousness. Bid my fear. Bid my anxiousness. He will bring us to Cana. That is the truth. And what they saw on that mountain is that what bid their fear and anxiousness to go away. When Peter says, we have a living hope in Christ Jesus who rose from the dead, even though we will experience grievous trials, I can have hope. Because Christ Jesus is who he said he was, and he did save us, he does reign on high, and he reigns with us, and I can be confident, I can have hope in whatever darkness I face. That is the truth of the story. It's an unbelievable truth, and the world is so open to us, and you're not defined by your opportunities, you're not defined by your skill, you're not defined by your network, you're defined by your hope in Christ. Do not fall for the lies that this world has, that you're defined by those things, because it's not true. These three men, Peter, James, and John, had no business starting the church. They had no business being fathers of the Christian movement. They had no business. What they were facing, the Roman Empire, the Jewish establishment, they had no shot what Jesus was calling them to. The only hope they had was what they saw on that mountain and realized that Christ was with them and they could do it. And they did it because Christ was with them. But I want to leave that as encouragement to you as we enter into prayer. Dear Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would evaporate fear, that you would give them a living hope, that you would reveal your glory to them. What I ask in my fear that you would show your glory to us, Lord, and give us confidence. As you gave Moses confidence, you gave Isaiah confidence, and you gave Peter, James, and John confidence. Lord, we ask for confidence. We ask that you would fill us with your hope. It only comes by acknowledging and understanding your glory and majesty, that you are who you say you are, that this world is not closed off from you, that you invade it, you come into it, you take on flesh, you suffer and die and rose from the grave and sin on high, and sin the right hand of the fire, and for your church, that we can trust that and nothing separates from the love of Christ. 
Show us that. Give us confidence and assurance in that, Lord. Evaporate fear. Give us hope in our present darkness. We are not called to live on the mountain and be full of experiences and have extended times of just uh, worship all the time. We are called to live in the valley. We have to trust in you in the valley. Lord, I pray that you would give us that trust and give us that hope. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.